Modern Bonsai listeners, we are back and it has been a minute. We um, have done a lot of stuff this year and not a lot of it has been podcasting unfortunately. But we launched our new merchandise store here at Bonsai N, which is bonsaimerch.com. If you're interested, go check that out. And we also launched our Masterclass series, which is an online learning platform. So you can check that out at bonsaimerch.com. And if you're in Australia, you can check that out at bonsaien.com.au. But for today's episode, we are speaking with Sean Hartley, who is an Australian bonsai artist who is currently uh, apprenticing in Japan. And he shares with us some of the things that he's learning and the differences between what he learned here in Australia and Japan. So strap yourself in, enjoy yourself, and enjoy the podcast. So, um, yeah, do you want to just tell everybody who you are and what you're currently doing in Japan? Sure. So my name's Sean Hartley. I'm from Brisbane. I'm currently, I've almost finished my first year as an apprentice in Japan in the art of bonsai. I'm living in a small, in the town of uh, Okazaki, which is in the Aichi prefecture. Uh, The nursery I'm working at is called Daijuen. It's a third generation owned nursery by the master Toro Suzuki. All right, cool. Um, and before we get too far into the whole Japanese journey, um, take us back to when you're in Brisbane, Australia. How did you get into bonsai and whenabouts was that? Ah, so... Uh, how do I say this and keep it relatively short without going overboard? Uh, you, you can go overboard, man. We've got time. Ah, of course, of course. So my father's a third-generation orchid grower. Yep. Uh, my mother just loves to be in the garden. So growing up, most of my early childhood days, I was obviously playing in the gardens while my, fam- my parents worked. At a very young age, my auntie was a deputy principal and both my auntie and father hated the idea of son, stop watching TV, go and read a book, go and do something productive. So when I would have been about five, six years old, my auntie helped teach me to read. Yep. And at a point where I was starting to feel competent, I'd go to her place and she'd say, pick a book. One day I picked up a book and it was Bonsai by, I think it was Colin Lewis. And I've gone, I've asked her, what's Bonsai? And ever since then, I was absolutely hooked on it. I just couldn't get enough. Every time I'd go to her place, all I wanted to do was read the Bonsai books. I thought it was something absolutely magical about seeing these trees. I, I still can't get over that nostalgic feeling. When I look at a bonsai, there's just something magical about it. And yeah. shortly thereafter, uh, obviously, I'm watching TV and I discovered the Karate Kid and I was like, hey, bonsai. But by that stage, I was already just madly obsessed with the art. 
uh, every time I'd ask my mother or my auntie to help me get started, help me find my first bonsai tree, they thought it was just a phase. And they kind of tried to push it out. They're like, oh, you know, it's a phase. He'll get over it. He'll get over it. And eventually enough, I got tired of asking for help because at that age, I didn't know how else to begin. So I kind of just pushed it off at the back of my mind and forgot about it. Fast forward through time, I believe I was 23, 24. I'd completely forgotten about bonsai. Uh, Myself, my father and my best friend, we were all working together at that stage for my dad's business and our neighbor came over and he knew we were crazy for plants and I don't know why but he had a trailer overflowing with plants in the back of it and he's gone are any of you guys interested in a bonsai tree I've got three of them and they were just figs at the time the ficus benjamina I think and without even thinking the memory became re-sparked and it's bonsai, hell yeah. So my father, my best friend and I, we bought all three of them, one each. Over time, they lost interest, but the kid in me was just squealing for joy and ever since that, the rest is history. Yeah, right. That's a, that's a pretty good story, man. From some of the ones that I've heard, usually it's just a generic you know, karate kid or you know, found a, a bonsai in a big box retail store, but that's pretty cool, you know. Um, you know, having it deep-seated in the family and then growing up, forgetting about it, and then one just turns up in the back of a trailer one day and re-sparks that flame. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's almost like it was meant to be. It was pretty crazy. So after you got the, the fig and... Uh, reignited your love for bonsai. What what happened from there? Did the bug bite in straight away? Because I know that when I first got into bonsai, I got one tree, and within two or three weeks, it was like two or three trees, and then it turned into owning a nursery. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Oh, uh, the bug bit me hard. So, yeah, we've set up this little cool little zen corner display and we had these three figs and we put a few little garden stones around it watered them we've grabbed a beer and we're staring at them what do we do next my friend's like oh i heard you're supposed to spend at least half an hour every day with each tree obviously at that stage we had no clue what we were doing like half an hour hey we're looking we're looking nah, let's go to the internet. We've got to get some more. Uh, it just went chaotic from there. We went. We thought bonsai had to be little seedlings. Like our thoughts on it were so misconstrued. We didn't know what we were doing. But, yeah, we ended up with about 50 trees in the backyard after the next two to three weeks of all different shapes and sizes. Uh, as time went by, my father just, he didn't really care for it at all. He thought it was cool for two minutes. My friend, he stuck through with it for about a year. Uh, so I took to the internet. I had no idea where to go, what to do. And I discovered all these different 
videos. Some were really interesting. Some were a bit slow. But I kept, I went back to all of the books and I got really upset one day because I was reading every single book. I wanted to know everything I could. And there was this one small section that just bugged me. I don't know who wrote it. I think out of spite, I threw the book in the bin straight away. I've never been able to find it ever since. But he said in the book, when it came to the section on wiring your bonsai, he goes, you know, this is how you wire a tree. But after time, you have to remove the wire or you will damage your tree. But you can't cut the wire and you should not uncoil the wire from your tree because you risk damaging it. And we all sat there for about half an hour going, so if you can't cut it, you can't uncoil it, what do you do? Yep. So I went, no, nah, this isn't right. I need to go and ask professional help. So back to the good old internet. And the nursery has closed down now, unfortunately, but it was Tess and Selby Simpson, lovely, lovely people. I went to them and did my beginner's bonsai course, which set the flame even brighter. I discovered I had one too many trees after that and I needed to push further forward. So back to the internet and I discovered the Bonsai Society of Queensland. And I was like, great. I've contacted them straight away and said, I want to sign up. I want to join. I'm just mad for bonsai. I can't get enough. And many emails backwards and forwards. Uh, you can come for a trial. Uh, you know, you can visit. That's no problem. This is our next date. And so, okay, cool. They're like, oh, membership fees are $20 a year. I went, excellent. And not knowing who they were. And <laughs> so... I finally appeared on the day and they'd asked, you know, if you would like, bring a plate of food and if you want, you can bring a tree for display. Yep. And I've, I've still got it. It's uh, just your typical juniper, but it, I wanted to make a semi-cascade and my gosh, was it, I don't know what was more embarrassing, my attire or the tree itself. <laughs> but trying to do... Sending emails forwards and backwards, I'm being as polite and courteous as I can be. But the day I've rocked up, everybody's turned their heads and looked at me, covered in piercings, rainbow mohawk, dressed all in black. I've come in with this plate of food, this juniper, and $20, and I've applied straight away. Most of the club have asked me, oh, am I in this for the long run or am I in this for the short run? My simple answer was I didn't know there was a short run for bonsai. And that from that day on, I joined up as a member of the Bonsai Society of Queensland. I think it was two years after that, I noticed there was a vacant spot on the committee that just for some reason could not get filled. So I joined the committee and I'd been on the committee for maybe three years. And at that stage, Tony Bebb was the president. Yep. Uh, he stood down so he could focus on running his own school and chasing his professional career in the art of bonsai. Uh, during the World Bonsai Convention, I believe it was, 
I was sorry, I got ahead of myself. Um, so last year there was an article floating around on in Facebook, and it was uh, for a one month trial at Shunkayen. And everybody kept sending it to me. And I was like, yeah, right. I applied for it, thought, what am I going to lose? Uh, they came back to me and said, oh, yeah, we'd love you to come down and do some study with us. And at that stage, I was a maintenance contractor and I'm basically doing everything in construction. And yeah. it was two months before I was due to fly out to go and spend one month at Shunkayen. I had a bit of a freak accident and just about cut my finger, my index finger off. Oh, crap. Yeah. Uh, I went halfway through the first knuckle, severed two of the tendons, absolutely mutilated it. So I had to take, have it have an operation, take three months off of work, which meant I couldn't go to Shunkayen. Yep. So I respectfully apologized and told them I couldn't do it. But during that time, Tony, I think that was during the World Bonsai Convention because Tony was in the country doing his bonsai business and he got introduced to Toro Suzuki. And they were driving in the car one day and he asked if he knew anybody that was looking to do an apprenticeship. He was desperate for an apprentice. And so Tony rang me, and without even thinking, I said, yeah, give it to me. And the rest is history. I've, I flew out September just before my birthday, Came did my three-month trial, absolutely loved it. The family are great people. Came home for Christmas, and I've been here since January ever since. And thanks to COVID, I don't know when I'm going to get to go home. Yeah, right. That's crazy. So... When you when you first got to Japan, because obviously, you know, starting your bonsai journey in Australia, what was the what was the culture shock like in terms of um, you know living arrangements and the language, um, food, all that kind of uh, you know all that kind of stuff. Yep, yep. Uh, explosive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I will never forget my first day in Japan. Um, so I'm a bit of a nerd. I love my anime. I love the Japanese culture, the history. All of it fascinates me. And I can speak a little bit of broken Japanese, but not that much. But my first day in Japan, I landed in Tokyo. Yep. And... I was sitting next to another Australian and he said, oh, nothing's been on the news about the typhoon. And I said, what, what typhoon? He goes, oh, typhoon literally just went through and wiped out Japan. And I went, oh, okay, not thinking anything of it. The plane's landed and the captain's gone, oh, there's another plane at our dock. We're going to be a little while before we can get off. Sorry about the delay. We yeah. sat there in the plane for three hours, and I've gone, this is crazy. I finally got off the plane, and it was chaos. There were just people everywhere. 
easily a couple of thousand people that have been stranded because of this typhoon. Here I'm going, okay, we can do this. We can do this. I start walking around and realize I can't read anything. People are talk, staff are talking to me. I can't understand a single thing they're saying. My broken Japanese was absolutely nothing. It took me about another four hours just to get outside of the airport. <laughs> only to walk into twice the amount of people. There were no taxis. There were no buses. Everything was closed. Even once you got through uh, the initial checkpoint at the hotel, uh, the airport, there were signs everywhere. Too many people, staff can't keep up, so they closed and went home for the night. Okay, yeah, wow. I've got, what it, what, what's going on? This isn't right. <laughs> and I'm freaking out. The humidity has knocked my socks off. Uh, I had to get to my hotel for the night so I could catch my flight the next morning. And there was no staff. There was no one to help you. It was every man for himself. So my anxiety is going through the roof. My suitcase has decided to die on me at the time and one of the wheels blew out. <laughs> my suitcase is 30 kilos. I didn't know what I was going to be walking into with the seasons. Um, so I'm overloaded on winter clothes and summer clothes just to be on the safe side. And I finally saw a bus driver after about an additional two hours of trying to figure out what to do. And he's holding up a sign for my hotel. I thought, yes, I'm free. No. I had to walk to my hotel not knowing anything and with a broken suitcase. I finally made it to my hotel, managed to get a few drinks into me and forget that that situation ever happened. Next day, similar situation, no staff or bad translation. I finally made it to... Okazaki and you know meeting the family it was interesting very friendly very nice when I finally got to Daijuan and I saw the bonsais my first time in Japan I cried like just it was so beautiful but then the next day that's when the work began and the culture shock really sunk in yeah. Waking up first thing in the morning, having to go straight into the cleaning because I live on site, trying to communicate with the family. And Sean, at that stage, I spoke 100 miles an hour and they don't speak much English. Uh, it took a long time to become adjusted to it. And same for them. Like, they're a very traditional family. Uh, they were trying to teach me the traditional Japanese apprentice way that I was a little bit slow on the upkeep. Uh, you know, a customer comes, you've got to race and make tea to the point where over time we've managed to work together and understand the culture differences. Yep. And then it became a lot, it's become a little bit easier over time. But yeah, it, it's it's a different kettle of fish, the Japanese culture and the way they do things as opposed to the way they do back in Australia. I think I um I think I seen not too long ago on your Facebook page that you had actually fallen ill. Ah yeah, that was a fun week. So I'm in a family of eight. Yep. I'm the eighth person included. 
so my Oyakata, he has four daughters. And uh, so there's my, in the household, there's my Oyakata, my senpai, who's the next to become the head of Daijuan, the fourth generation. And his wife's got three children. Yep. And typical young children, they go to school, they come home sick. You've got children, I'm sure you understand. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I ended up catching their cold. And, you know, it's just a cold. But we had to go to a customer's house in Toyama, I believe it is. I'm not good with locations here. I'm shocking with names. Yep, yep. <laughs> love this customer, love his garden, but it's on a rooftop on a main road and it was freezing and the wind was howling and that's when the, the cold decided to kick in, which was, you know, all fun, but because of corona, my Oyakata became very scared and he's ringing his doc, our, the it's a customer and also the family doctor. And it's, uh, he could have corona, you know, just keep him away from people. So I had one day off to recover and then I had to work and I'm basically working in my own little coma ward that's been self-created. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm dying inside trying to convince them that it's just the cold. I don't have corona. A week's gone by. I finally get tested. They think it's safe enough for me to go out and get tested. Came back negative. Oh, Captain's almost crying. He's so happy. He takes me straight to the doctor. Doctor gives me a whole stack of medicine. Yeah. And that was at about lunchtime. And he's like, oh, take it morning and night. Okay, okay, no dramas. We've had dinner. I've taken my medicine. And my body went into a total allergic reaction, basically a small case of anaphylactic shock to the medicine he'd given me. Oh, no. I'd broken out in hives. My skin was on fire. I'd lost my voice. I couldn't breathe. So I've been raced back to the hospital to be put on a drip. But, you know, when those sorts of things happen, you've got to have fun with it. My oil cut is freaking out. I've got a drip hanging out of my arm. I've told him to put the blanket over my head, take a photo and send it to mum. <laughs> what can you do in those situations you know you can either break down or you can laugh about it and the best thing i could think of is you know how can i calm the boss down and tell him i'll be okay so let's have a laugh you've got to have a strong spirit though because you know being in a foreign country getting looked after by foreign doctors you know it's not like here where you get sick and you can go to a hospital and you can say hey doc what's wrong with me you know you're in another country you don't speak their language i that week made me very homesick i can tell you that much yeah um, you were you were saying that um when, when you first came in uh on the plane and you'd been notified that there'd been a typhoon that's come through um, I believe that that's a pretty normal thing for Japan to have events like that with heavy wind and, you know, lots of rain and stuff. Um, I think, I can't remember where, whether I was speaking to Ryan about it or Bjorn, um, but they were saying that there'd be some mornings where you'd get woken up at like 3am and you'd have to go to the nursery to, you know, save the trees and... Um, 
Has that happened to you yet? I know you've only been there for about a year now, but... I've been very fortunate with that. I don't like typhoon prepping. That is a horrible, horrible job. Um, I've been really lucky. So I've heard stories of, because we all live on site, um, you know, we don't have to stress about getting woken up and running to work. But, you know, I've only got a sliding door with no lock. So there's been a few moments where the bosses just opened the door and barged in. But since I came to Japan, typhoon's been pretty tame for us. And I've been through two typhoon seasons now. Yeah. Um, that hasn't happened yet, touch wood. But I'm, I'm expecting during my time there will be occasions where I may get woken up at 2, 3 in the morning. One of our biggest customers uh, that we work for is uh, a temple called Shimpukuji Temple. And that guy's easily got over a 1,000 trees. And I've heard stories of the senpai before me where 3 a.m., there they are in the middle of a typhoon, tying trees down, bringing trees back inside. It'll be an eye-opener the day that happens. I'll tell you what, you know, we don't get them here in Australia, but where we're located uh, here in Port Stephens, we've got no protection. We're, we're right next to the ocean here, and we're right out on that tip. Like, there's nothing. We're about as far out on the edge of Australia as you can get. And, oh, man, I can't tell you how many times at, Early hours of the morning, we've been outside taking, you know, prize trees off benches, running around, getting absolutely drenched, just going, oh, my God, this tree, that tree, you get them off the bench, put them into protection, and this, that. And then every, every single time, without fail, the minute we get every tree off the bench and into protection, it clears up. Yeah, of course it does, doesn't it? Every single time, and you know, the one time that you're like, "No, nah, we're not going to do it. It'll clear up." We had, we had uh, a storm a few weeks ago, and I thought, "Ah, oh, yeah, you know, it's probably just going to pass." Next minute, seventy kilometer an hour winds come through, knock half the trees off the bench. One of them fell off and broke the pot, and it's like, "Ah, oh, here we go, middle of the night repotting." <laughs> you damned if you do, you damned if you don't, right? Oh, that's it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the, but, the things we do for trees. Oh, that's it. You know, you, you come back in and you're absolutely drenched and you think, man, the things that I'm doing right now for miniature trees, people would think I'm crazy. Oh, yeah, but I bet bedtime has never looked so good after the work's been done. Oh, yeah, that's it. And, uh, I mean, it's at the moment, you know, all my – all my really good trees are tied down. You know, I've, I've learnt my lesson. Um, <laughs> you know, after after a few incidents, I've learnt my lesson. But the minute that wind kicks up or the rain, it's just like you cannot sleep. You're just thinking the whole time, and the tree's okay, and the tree's okay. Absolutely. Like, my ex-girlfriend used to hate me for it, but I'm so thankful she did it. Uh, Winds up in Brisbane, they can get strong, but not that strong. But every time there was a sign of hail, I'd come home from work and, good girl, all my bonsais were inside. Like a hailstorm used to freak me out. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I can I can feel that pain, man. Uh, <clears throat> I don't care about the car. Yeah, let the car get smashed by hail, but please get the trees inside. Get the trees inside. Get <laughs> them to safety. I don't want to see a broken branch or a broken pot. <laughs> 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 so um, with, with your apprenticeship that you're doing there now, um, where... Where are you within the apprenticeship? Because I do believe that when you start off, you start off on like cleaning duties and things of the morning. And like you said, when a customer comes in, you've got to run to get them tea, those kind of things. Um, I have seen some photos popping up of you working on some really nice trees. So, you know, your oil cutter must have, you know, some faith in you already. So where whereabouts are you in that? apprenticeship uh, that's a good question a difficult one to answer uh, so currently i am the only apprentice uh and before that i've been practicing bonsai for maybe eight years in australia yep so i thought i had a pretty good basic understanding on wiring maintenance and when i came here it was only me so i had to start right at the bottom but i seem to have rapidly progressed through it mm, progressed through it i i'm not sure i'm i basically jumped straight into the deep end head first and i've been doing everything since day dot and as i work i'm obviously proving myself to him that yes, I'm competent in this. Yes, I'm competent in that. And he can see that I'm not afraid of hard work and not afraid to get dirty. So, yeah, it's really interesting. So, well, that's. Mm, sorry. I was going to say that's actually what you've just said there is a really good segue into what was going to be my next question is. Given that you started bonsai in Australia in a relatively humble beginning, you know, in a in a you know small club, um, you know, with Australian material, you know, what we've got available to us, what? How do I put this? Um, what differences have you seen in terms of like techniques, whether it be um, styling or things like wiring, fertilizing? Are there, can you see massive differences between what we do here in Australia and what they do there in Japan? Because Japan is what is seen as, you know, the pinnacle of bonsai. So is there a huge difference between the way you see that things are practiced in Australia and the way that things are practiced in Japan? Because I did ask, I think it was Bjorn, you know, I asked him, do you believe that the you know, Japan apprenticeship is still something that's needed these days to be a top-level bonsai practitioner. Mm, definitely. There are, there are some big differences, and I have to be careful with that. Uh, so... For starters, wiring, 
I had never worked with copper wire before. It was always aluminium. So that was a huge learning curve. Yep. Uh, for something different, yes. Here at Dijuan, during the daytime, it's predominantly maintenance work. Uh, we work for a lot of customers. We work on a lot of customer trees. And, you know, take black pine for an example. Yep. Uh, constant needle plucking, constantly, constantly pulling needles. Dijuan's famous for their black pines. It's predominantly a black pine nursery. Yep. I first started uh, the technique, the way I was plucking needles was so slow compared to the way they do it here. But at the same time, I'm stuck in the Australian way. Yep. I'm pulling the needles from the tip and leaving the white sheath attached to the tree. Okay, yep. My first tree took me nearly a day and a half to complete. Now that same size tree should only take me half a day to clean. Yep. But one thing I found out that I got in trouble for was I kept leaving the white sheath behind and the tree was classed as dirty. Okay. And they completely removed the sheath, everything. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, same for junipers. There have been times where I've been ordered to go through and pinch the whole tree, and there's a big misconception about pinching junipers. And a lot of the times I go through with scissors and I'll cut and clean them out like that. Yep. But. There was one day in particular, it was a Tosho Juniper, Junipus Redigida. Yep. And I've asked, he's going, oh, Sean, clean, clean. So, okay. And I've got my tweezers and I've got my scissors ready to go. And he goes, no, 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 no. Hands, hands, pinch, pinch. Pinch, pinch. And he's going, yeah. And he's walked up and he's grabbed a pad and he's pinched every single bud. And I've gone, really? And I don't know about what it's like for where you're based in Australia, but I've heard a lot of people somewhere along the grapevines, the, there's a rumour that pinching junipers is bad, so it's really hard to forget what I've learnt in Australia but maintain the core knowledge and apply it to Japan but absorb the Japan's way. But I've got to keep in mind... There are things I can do in Japan that I possibly shouldn't do in Australia just because the gr- seasons are different, the growing conditions are different. It It's tricky. Yeah, right, because I've always been under the impression that pinching junipers was bad. I always tell people not to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've somehow managed to convince, uh, convince managed to talk to my Oyakata about that and his answer to that was, uh, it's the water. If you're going to pinch a juniper, you make sure you keep the water up. And it gets really difficult because he doesn't speak much English. But, yeah, and I went through and I pinched that tree. And within the next month, it was absolutely exploding with buds. Okay, yeah, right. 
it's yeah there's a lot the there's a lot to take on board and try and understand and i've re- you really got to forget some of the knowledge you learn back home but still apply it and still keep it in the back of your mind yeah well i guess if you have you know knowledge from different parts you know of bonsai because i mean you you've probably seen it being in various clubs and things like that you learn one thing from one person and another person says another thing and then another person says another thing but you look at each of their trees and what each person does works for them exactly and i get the exact same treatment here as well uh you know between multiple senpai between my oyakata uh, so i if i remember correctly I am apprentice number 37 for the Daijuan family yep. in this household. And there are many times senpai will come and they will do some work or they'll sell or buy or just come to talk to their oyakata. They'll see me working and they'll say, what are you doing? Do it this way. And they'll teach me their way. They'll go and another person, another senpai will be like, what are you doing? Do it. it. Everybody's got a different technique. And the best thing I was taught was pay attention to what they've got to say, take their information and compare it to the other information and find what works best for you. Yeah, well, that's it. I think that's why. Yeah, I think that's why um, some people adapt to different teachers better just because maybe they teach in a way that is more suitable to them. Absolutely. And it's the communication as well, I think. Yeah. So in your short time in Japan, have you had time to travel to anybody else's nurseries there? Yeah, I've been to many, many nurseries and every single one of them are total eye-openers. Yep. Uh, I visited Master Kimura's garden. Uh, I'm shocking with names, but I've been to Mansayan, many different villages in uh, nurseries in Omiya. Yeah, we constantly visit other customers' nurseries, and they're great. It's great to go there just to study and to look. Even at auctions, when you see material, like I work for a certain auction twice a year, and those days are the hardest days of my life. I've never worked so hard, but it's great to see so many different types of trees and see how the trunks are arranged, the styling, everything. It's really good to study on and just to look. Are they still... um pretty tight on the quote-unquote rules of bonsai there in Japan? That blew my mind at first. Um, The quote-unquote rules of bonsai, I think, was actually a misinterpretation of the original book on bonsai. Yep. Because I see multiple bar branches. If you look close enough on the underside of trees, there are many crossed wires the work's absolutely beautiful, but I literally had to dump a lot of knowledge because I see so many trees. And 
I asked my way up there if I'm styling and wiring a tree. I said, can I cut this branch off? And he, he'll look at me and he's like, why do you want to cut this branch off? And I said, well, I don't think this one should be kept and it's a bar branch. Won't that create, you know, reverse swelling and reverse taper? No, 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 no. Keep, keep, keep. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a whole different world. Um, you know, the rules are great, but the rules, they're more of a guideline for younger trees, I believe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> most rules are made to be broken, but the rules are there to push you in a direction to begin with and it's only once you understand why the rules exist that you can break them exactly like you know when you look at a two three hundred year old tree and it's got bar branching but there's no reverse taper it's when did that branch actually originally grow whereas you know if you did that to what a 10 20 year old tree of course it's going to have a big swelling nub in the center over time yeah, it, it's hard to explain, and it's different. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I know what you're saying. Um, I think because we've we spoke about this many times before. You know, I spoke about it with some of my bonsai friends, and may have even spoken. I think, I think maybe I spoke with Ryan about it on the podcast we did. But you know, I even said to him, you know, with our Australian native stuff. Do you believe that because we have material that they don't have anywhere else in the world, that we have a clean slate? We, you know, we can do our own thing with that material because why follow the quote-unquote rules when they probably don't apply there? I remember that, yes. I think, I guess it depends on your morals and, uh, morals and values. Your thoughts, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess it depends on your thoughts on what bonsai actually is. Because there are some artists that are chasing the American, the Australian style, and it's very unique. I won't, I'm not knocking it, um, and I'm not approving of it. Uh, I think it depends on your personality and who you are as an artist and i say good on them each to their own uh, it's different i'm i'm obsessed with the traditional japanese way i think you know bonsai was originated in japan and i fell in love with that particular style so i want to master it but at the same time, you're correct. We don't have the trees and the raw material that they have in Japan. So we really do, in a sense, need to create our own style. Like, I wonder what it would feel like for a Japanese master to style a Melaleuca. Yeah, that'd, that'd be interesting to see. You know, like, here it's it's junipers, it's bon uh, black pines, but Australia... We've got melaleucas, tea trees, all different types of trees. So to take one of those trees and replicate nature, I think it's pretty impressive the way people are trying to perceive bonsai in that style, in that sense. Yeah, well, I guess if you see bonsai as an art, 
you know, if you look at art just as a, a blanket word, there's many types of art that fall under, under that. So, you know, you've got contemporary art and you've got modern art and all those different things. And I think with bonsai, we kind of need the same thing. Um, you know, that's how things move forward and they evolve. You know, people come out and they do something different. And, you know, um, I can only imagine, you know, when bonsai was first around, you know, when it first came over from China and it was penjing and then, you know, it was brought into Japan and then they started doing just trees in the pots, um, wiring them up. And then imagine the first time that somebody planted a tree on a rock and did a mountain scene. It would have been just like, would have been mind-blowing. So, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to see what the next development or the next phase in bonsai will be, and it's only going to be those people that push the envelope and break the rules that are going to achieve that. Right. A simple drawing always starts off with a blank piece of paper. Yeah, that's right. But Yeah. But you know what? In, in saying that, it's really hard to teach bonsai without teaching the rules. I think that, yeah, that, that that's where people need to... Uh, as a bonsai community, I think we need to find a new word for it because every, every artist that says the word rules kind of cringe when they say it. Or they box themselves in. Yeah. You know, we need this this word that we can come up with so it's like... You know, these are the things that you learn when you start out and they will guide you to making better trees. Once you obtain that level, then you can start pushing outside of the box and doing your own thing. But it's not until you understand those fundamentals that you can do that. Right. Like, why not, why, you know, using this podcast as an example, why don't we try and stop? saying the word rules and encourage everybody to start saying, okay, so these are the general guidelines in regards to starting the styling of such a young tree. You know, I think if you use the term rules, it's bam, they're locked in. It's on paper. You have to do it this way. Yeah, exactly. If we, if we change the word from rules to guidelines it might help relax the mindset of early um, early artists future artists it, you know you're right we need to try and make a subtle change yeah because i think um you know like you were saying before you know in in japan they've got bar branching and wires crossing on branches but yet here we're trying to avoid that so much. Um, like even today, I was styling out a tree, and I had no choice; I had to cross a wire. And for some reason, you know, I knew myself that it wasn't going to be an issue for the tree. But as soon as I crossed that wire, I just had this feeling like, "Oh, I'm doing something wrong," you know? Yep, absolutely. Um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. You said something. Um... Bar branching. Uh, I lost it. Um. Yeah, that's all right. But you know, even even still to these days, you know, following 
those guidelines, I still feel, even though I know that they are only guidelines, I still feel constricted by them a little bit because when I first started doing bonsai, they were quote-unquote rules. So that kind of sticks with your mindset of bonsai, and that's why, you know, even I've tried to, um, on our Facebook page, I did like five days of um, bonsai mindset hacks where I was trying to teach, you know, beginners how to think about bonsai a little bit differently, you know, get them into that right mind, you know, frame of mind, because I think as well as, you know, the physical aspect of getting your hands on a tree, you know, you'd be finding it at the moment, being an apprentice in Japan, that mental aspect has to be correct as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right because my thought just came back is um, with the rules, it's, you know, simple styling, left, back, right, front, left, back, you know, has to be that way. But uh, at the end of the day, myself, many others I've been with, they'll follow those rules and they'll go, why, why do my trees not look like the trees in Japan? Yeah. You know, I would love to go back in time with the knowledge I have now and revisit my original garden and I'd smack myself for some of the branches I've cut off. But here, my Oyakata just will not let, uh, for the first six to nine months, he would not let me cut. It was, yep. you know, if I was wiring a tree, it's, He'll walk up, he'll look at it, he'll cut two branches off. And he go, okay, why everything? And yep. I'll sit there and go, but the, the rules, the rules, this, this, this. Hi, Bacardi Master. Okay, I won't argue. If you say wire, I'll wire. And I'll style this tree and my mind's just blown out of control because I'm stuck with what the English translation to the, what the rules are and I'll wire the tree and I'll set it. He'll come in and say, like, oh, could you please check my work? And he'll go through and he's like, oh, okay. He'll see where my wiring skills are and then he'll start cutting branches off. I think it's more like a test to see what I can do. Yep. Even till now, you know, I'm staring at – so during the daytime, we do customer work. Every now and again, I'll be fortunate to wire during the day. That That's rare. During the days, it's a lot of maintenance work. And nighttime is free time, which is study time, wire time. Uh, the Shimpaku that I just posted recently on my Facebook and Instagram, yep. that was a very special customer tree that even I was surprised I got to work on. Trees like that, I get to wire during the daytime. But I'm looking at my nighttime tree now, and it's probably about 100, 150-year-old Japanese white pine. Yep. And we'd been discussing this tree over the last couple of weeks, and we changed the front without doing anything. We're just changing angles, looking at the style. The poor tree was sick and lost a lot of branches. Yep. I must have said a few right things, and he's gone, okay, Sean, 
I want you to take everything I've taught you and apply it, and I want you to wire this tree in your spare time. And I've I've wired halfway up the tree, but I haven't touched the first branch yet. The first branch yeah. is located almost to the back of the tree. Yep. But with you know with breaking the rules, I. I don't think I'll touch this branch until I finish the tree because I don't know if I should actually keep it or cut it off yet. But but rules are meant to be broken and it's very interesting to see what you can do and how sometimes the first first branch doesn't actually start at the front of the tree. Yeah, yep. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, we've just started here at Bonsai N our Masterclass series. And um, uh, our teacher is Andrew Edge here from the Central Coast, and he's been doing bonsai for about 25 years. And he just happened to mention that, mention that in one of the classes the other day, that, you know, sometimes with the material that you got, you're not going to get so lucky where you can have the first branch is a third of the way up the trunk and it's on the outside of a bend, you know. <laughs> we don't always get that lucky. Exactly, and I think that's what takes an artistic eye, you know. And one thing that I've learned to respect is I've I've kind of blanked it, blanked out the rules of you know front, back, left, and I've stopped cutting. Like, you know, granted, there are certain times where yeah, I will cut if I don't think it's absolutely necessary. But to leave so much more on a tree leaves so much more for the future design. Yep. And I think people are so so bashed, so obsessed with the rules, I think it will put Australian bonsai at a potential standstill until people can learn to understand that you can only work with what you've got. And yeah, if you exactly. cut off, what have you got? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think one of the other, you know, hardships that beginners face is that there's so much information out there to do with the bonsai. And as I said before, people have many different ways of doing things. And I've seen, you know, people on the internet get slandered for doing something one way because somebody else does it the other way and they were taught this way. And it's like, well, you know, have a look at what they've done did it work? And if it worked, then you can't say it's wrong necessarily, um, you know, because it worked. Um, Go to the internet's professional, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has a Google scholarship. Yeah, no, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm here is you know, one part's for myself, the other part, I want to take what I can learn in Japan and bring it back to Australia and help teach people and open their eyes to a different way of growing bonsai, you know. And if I see someone in the tree, it's mediocre to be polite. I'm not going to attempt to go, oh, it's mediocre. I'm going to give you a pat on the back and say, you did the best you could with the dollars you had. Now how can we take this tree and push it to its next level, you know? Yeah. I don't believe in internet bullying or belittling. Like, we've all got to start somewhere. And, you know, if everybody's rough and gruff, then 
people will be too scared to want to do it. So I want to try and be that fun, friendly, polite person where it's like, hey, great job, kid. Let's go. We can push this further now. Come on. Yeah, I, I push. I think people, you know, gravitate more towards that than, you know, kind of, you know, that harsh mentality of, you know, it's meant to be this way and the kind of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for now? Strict. Yeah, or the the elitist. Yep. You know, you within every hobby there's elitists and they believe their way and their way is strict and gold and if you don't do it that way then but i tell you what man i've seen some people that push the boundaries man that do some awesome work exactly exactly i had an absolute heart attack when i first walked into the bonsai world and this is my work and i'm looking at books and you know, you see people that are so stuck in their ways and like, this is wrong, this is wrong. You, you kind of, you recluse a little and you kind of go, should I actually be here? Am I actually worth it? You know, it's rough. But, you know, every time I see a new kid that walks into the club or, you know, shows a tree and they're proud of it, give them the pat on the back. Hey, you're proud of that tree. You did that work. Good on you, man. Let's go. We can keep going with this. We can work with this, you know. If everybody helps everybody give that little bit of emotional motivation for the new beginners, so to speak, can you imagine where Bonsai would be in the next 30 years? Yeah, exactly, because enthusiasm is what makes things grow. And, I mean, you, you could probably think back, as can I, is when you got your first Bonsai, it was probably nothing it was you know i think mine probably would have been like a one or two year old juniper and to me it was the best thing in the world yeah you look back now and go oh that was embarrassing but man did i love that tree yeah there was like a certain innocence to you know loving that bonsai and you know now you would you know obviously look at better material but you know if you can just keep people enthusiastic in that stage eventually they will you know grow and they will learn and they will start moving up and getting better material and you know it's all part of the journey of you know finding where to get you know better material whether that's actually finding a bonsai nursery or you know going out on a dig and getting some yamadori or whatever it is right right you know that's the thing that I find so exciting. And, you know, you see people get excited and chuffed about it. And to me, that just fills me even more. It's like, come on, let's go. We can do this. Let's keep going. And it's exciting. It's like watching a kid in martial arts go from white belt to yellow belt. They feel like a black belt. Yep. Like, keep that vibe. Keep that spirit, man. Keep it alive. And just imagine where we're going to go in the next 30 years. Yeah, it's been so great this week because we um, just put out our gift trees for the year. Um, And all the people that have come and bought the gift trees, the way they look at them with such love and, you know, and really they're just, you know, juniper cuttings and whatnot in like a little landscape pot, Um, you know, some small little tea trees and elms and those kind of things, but they fall in love with them instantly. 
Oh, yeah. You could see the pride and self-satisfaction and excitement go across their faces. And to me, that's just the best thing ever. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing I think of when they, they buy them and they look at them with such love and I think, yeah, they're hooked. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And I get, I get such a kick of joy when I see that look sweep across people's faces. You know, To me, it makes me feel like a little kid again when I see people get excited for bonsai. Yeah. All I've got to start somewhere and, you know, if we can give everybody that little gentle motivational push, it's only just going to grow bigger, better and stronger. 100%. So with you saying, you know, all that, when you, are you, well, first of all, are you in Japan for six years? Is it a full apprenticeship? Uh, so... It's a total mixed rumor, that one, and I don't fully understand it. What I've been told is after three years full-time as an apprentice, yep. you are then legally allowed to work and teach as a bonsai professional in Japan. Yep. I may be wrong on that one, but after five my way I cut this is five years, but some nurseries are six. It depends on your boss. But after five to six years, you then get the Nippon uh, Bonsai Association Certificate. Yep. So if I can do it in five, I'll be very, very happy. And then once you complete that, um, is your plans to come back to Australia and open your own school or a nursery or or is that too far ahead? Uh it's it's far in the future at the moment for me to think, but I would love to do my time. If I meet a girl, maybe stick around a bit longer. I'd love to do a bit of traveling, working as a professional. Yep. Uh, try to get my name out, start doing what I can to promote a future for bonsai in Australia. But then in the future, I would love to return to Australia and create a hybrid of museum nursery school yep i would love to create an establishment where people can come they can sit they can relax they can enjoy themselves in my garden but at the same time there'll be a section where if people are interested they can purchase trees or if they want to go further obviously i would love to create a school yeah yep Oh, that's awesome. We need more of that stuff here in Australia, um, you know, for people to participate in. And and from what I've heard, doing that in Japan is quite hard. Yeah, uh-huh. you're absolutely correct. And I want to do whatever I can to promote bonsai in Australia. Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, at the moment, um, it's totally booming here. And, I mean, around the world... The, you know, the last few years, it's just absolutely taken off. Um, and it's, you know, it's so cool to see that, you know, when people come to buy trees from me, nine times out of ten, they're quite young. You know, there, there's that stigma of it being just an older person's hobby is totally gone now, I believe. Um you know, and I think with the internet the way it is today, um, with the availability of podcasts and the YouTube channels and all that stuff that's out there, I think it's just 
it's turning into a freight train and seeing that where it's going is just going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited for the future of bonsai in that sense, hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean... Such a young country, you know, we're just getting started out on the whole new world of it. It's only going to grow bigger and better. Oh, it's quite... In the Western world, it's very young compared to, you know, the, the Asian countries like China, where it originated, and, you know, Japan, um, you know, where really just scratching the surface of what you know people have already done before us yeah absolutely and it's so cool to be able to you know to see the work of those that were before us and you know see where it is now and how it's evolving and um you know just and like the culture around it too because the thing that i've always found that you know Practicing bonsai with people in person is a completely different thing to the bonsai community on the internet. When you go to like a workshop or classes or even like a bonsai event like we had, um, pretty sure it was last year in, uh, I can't remember what month it was. I know it was in winter because it was freezing. I was in Canberra. Um, but we had the Bonsai Masters here where we had Ryan Neal and Kunio Kobayashi out. Yes, I didn't get to go to that. I really wanted to go. Yeah, so, and, I mean, you go to those things and the the culture around Bonsai, everybody's just so happy and everybody's sparking with joy and, you know, it's just so infectious. I think that's one one thing that's so infectious with, you know, Bonsai is that when you get around those people, you just you suck in all that energy. Yeah, ah, oh, those are the best times. Like during you know, my time in Australia, I'd go through many phases of self self doubt. Yep, and you know, all of a sudden, the club will host an international demonstrator or just a VTP visiting tutor program. And just to watch those guys do some work, it just gives you a whole new motivational boost. Yep. I become more excited to go home and look at my garden and go, he taught me something today or just the vibe gave me a kickstart. What can I do in my garden now that I've been not looking at before, you know? Oh, it's such an energetic uplifter. Oh, yeah, it's... Yeah, I tell you what, there's nothing better than going and looking at somebody else's collection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you just come home and you're like, man, I get, you know, I've got this drive to do something new now. I want to try that. Oh, I've seen this and, you know, I want to try this species because that looks so cool. And <laughs> uh, It's killing me right now because uh, apparently I was supposed to come home during August for a one-week vacation. Yep. And then I was supposed to return home now for Christmas. Yep. And I've got my mother looking after my dog and she's watering my plants for me every day. Yep. And I'm seeing photos and they're just growing and growing and growing. And every time I learn something new on a tree here, the first thing that goes to my mind is I've got to get back home and do this to my trees. Yeah, I'm gonna get home and do this to my trees. Oh, I can't. Okay, 
keep studying, keep practicing. Uh, I keep getting update photos and what I thought were pretty bonsais, they're just garden trees now. It is so depressing. I can't wait to go home and sink my teeth into my trees again. Yeah, well, hopefully that's soon because one of the things that, you know, I'm suffering with here as a business is, you know, those flights to Japan being stopped because it's hard for me to get my stock out of there because that's where we get most of our stock from. <laughs> right, yeah. COVID, the, you know, 2020, the year that just keeps on giving. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, being over there in Japan, um, have you found a new affinity for any species of trees? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, tried at maple. Yep. Uh, absolutely in love with them now. Uh, back in the day, so my top three favourite trees were pine, juniper and maple. Yep. Because Brisbane's, you can grow Japanese maple, but they don't look so beautiful. I yeah. became very spiteful towards trident maples, which can quite comfortably handle Brisbane weather. Yep. Because it's not a Japanese maple, I didn't want a bar of them. It was just, no, nah, I'm, I'm sorry. I like Japanese maple. Uh, coming here, I see trident maples and my heart just goes crazy for them. Yep. My respect for some tree species have completely changed. And I think that's just because, I've, one, I've been able to see them made on a more professional level, and two, I think I've managed to relax a little bit. <laughs> Living the Japanese lifestyle has been the rehab I needed. Yep. Yeah, cause I, I found that when I was first starting out, um, I was more in love with the needle-type you know, bonsai and not so much the leafy type. Um, just because you could make, I guess, a better looking bonsai with less work with those types of trees. Yeah, it's funny like that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm the, I'm the popular here. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that's strange because they're kind of big flower, big leaf. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually quite enjoy working on camellias now. Uh, they're a little bit more trickier because of the leaf size and the leaf flower, but, you know, even if it's a small tree to a larger size tree, somehow they work and they look really nice. And I've seen camellias where the leaf size has reduced significantly, yep. but they're quite a popular tree at some of the nurseries I work in. Yeah, right, because, you know, you would know yourself here in Australia, they're basically just a driveway plant. <laughs> yeah, my neighbour hates me because I keep threatening to dig his up that he's had in the front garden for over 50 years. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, it's funny because I've just, you know, found my love for tridents as well, and it's, it's funny because it stemmed from the exact same thing. I had Japanese maples and every summer the hot wind would come through and they would look like garbage. Yep. And then you look at the trident maple and you're like, hmm, just hasn't got as nice of leaves as the Japanese maple does. 
But then you kind of learn how much more hardy the Trident Maple is compared to the Japanese Maple. They're a lot more stronger. And if you can push that ramification, oh, they are beautiful when you see billions of the small leaves change colour during autumn. Yeah, yep. Uh, uh, yeah, I was so spiteful towards them. But ever since coming to Japan, I've just got a whole newfound love and respect for them. And, yeah. you know, can't, you can't be stereotypical. Like every tree's got its own characteristic, and tridents to me have just become one of my new favourites. Yeah, it's beautiful when you find a, a new tree that you fall in love with. Because I remember, you know, for me it was all about the the junipers and the black pines, and you know, as I said, I didn't really like leafing trees. And then I was doing a workshop one day, and the particular workshops that I would go to was at a nursery. So what I would do to challenge myself is I wouldn't take one of my trees that I already had. I'd just walk into the nursery, grab a rough bit of stock and work on it at the workshop. Um, Idea. Yeah. So, and then one day I just happened to go, you know what, stuff it. I'm going to get a leafy tree and just see what happens. And I just happened to walk through and I picked up a tea tree, took it, in, took it into the workshop, uh, started working on it and then just absolutely fell in love with tea trees. Um, you know, I've got heaps of them now in my collection. And then, you know, from there I started getting like uh, lily pillies and, you know, all other sorts of things. Um, you know, I ended up digging up a maria um, and... Turn, love marais. Uh, especially when, when they flower and the flowers have got such a beautiful scent to them. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And that's half the reason I love the tea trees too because when you work on them, you get that lemony scent. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, tea trees, melaleucas, when you break the foliage and you get that smell, it's oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's not like the junipers or the black pines, you know. They don't have the that fantastic smell that those natives do. Uh, no, they've, they've still got a sexy smell to themselves. Trust me on that one. Uh, yeah. What I love is in the workshop, um, you know, there'll be times where there'll be two or three of us working in the workshop and if we don't finish the trees, you know, They'll all go home or they'll go relax inside and I'll keep working. But first thing in the morning, I'll walk in and you smell the pine sap or the junipers that have just been cut and it permeates, it creates a perfume in the workshop. But they've got a beautiful smell behind them as well, especially white pines. I love the smell behind them. Yep. Uh, I, I know the smell that you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's different, but it's it's not as potent as the Australian natives. Branch but, of leaf. Yeah. And, and it's funny too because there's that, um, the, those things that come with working with different trees, like, you know, when you work on like um, squamata junipers, you know, you get that um, last year's growth that, dries off and becomes brown and you stick your hands into wire a branch and it pokes you in the end of the finger. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then like when you work on a, a black pine and you do the, you know, the needle plucking in summer and your fingers start to stick together after a few branches. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You know, you just, 
your hands get covered in sap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It makes you feel like a little kid again playing in dirt, making mud pies, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it's just all, all these trees have their own, their own little character about them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, it's, it just gets more and more exciting the more you delve into it. I just can't get enough of that. Although I gave myself a bit of trouble not long ago with one tree here. <laughs> it was a white pine. And it's, they have a different type of cut paste. And I've never used it before. And I cut this big branch off and I've covered the wound with cut paste. Uh, next day I've come in to have a look at the tree and it was just this giant balloon that had blown out from the cut. Oh, and right. I'm prodding at it and it was the sap build-up from underneath and it's exploded all over my hands, all over my clothes. And the smell was phenomenal, but I was just like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. My hands are sticky for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I couldn't imagine what that would have been like. Oh, it was fun. You know, you live and you learn. I won't do that again, that's for sure. But, ah. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't get to work on white pines here because we can't keep them because the climate here is just a bit too tropical, a bit too warm. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're in Sydney? Uh, No, I'm probably three hours north of Sydney in Port Stephens. Ah, okay, sorry, Port Stephens, of course. Yeah, because Victoria grows white pines, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And there's, I mean, not too far south of us, you know, they can have white pines just down past Sydney. But, yeah, but up here they don't do too well. Um, so, you know, I think it's the same with everybody. You've got to find those species that really, you know, thrive in your area. Um, Absolutely. I love Hinoki cypress. Yep. Uh, one of my all-time favourite trees, but, you know, where I live in Brisbane, they don't survive because it's just too hot and we don't get cold enough. Yep. But we go for one hour's drive and we've gone from the Gold Coast, from Brisbane to the Gold Coast to Mount Tambourine. Yep. And there's a variety of Hinoki growing there perfectly, but I can't take that one hour away because it'll just throw them into shock. Well, yeah. I haven't actually tried it, but I've been told they'll go and shop for it. So you've really got to learn to work with what you've got. Yeah, that's it. And that that probably would have been interesting for you too, going to Japan. There probably would have been a lot of species that you would have finally got your hands on for the first time that, you know, you hadn't worked on in Australia. Yup, there have been multiple where I've never even considered the thought of working on and they're playing with them here and it's just... Oh, okay. And one thing that's spun me out is my oya cutter loves bougainvillea. Yep, okay. And he's got multiple bougainvillea in the garden. And I've gone, I never expected to see a bougainvillea here. Hang on, is that a hibiscus over there? Are you kidding me? Like, there's some <laughs> interesting plants that pop up and float around. And what about in, in Japan, how do they... Um... How do they value their tools? Because it, it's funny here in Australia, and I think in the in most of the Western world, a lot of them kind of like if it's got kanji on it, it's the best tool in the world. Um, 
you know, in Japan, are they are they using the high end Japanese tools, or are they make are they using like regular garden tools, or you know, what do they? How do they value their tools there? Ah, that's interesting. Um, I'm looking at my tool case now. Uh, I've got you know a lot of uh, Ryuga and Kanishin tools. Yep. And you know I've started working on them, and the boss has looked at him and he's gone. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. And you'll go out. You'll come back and you'll have a box of scissors. And I'm holding the pair now. I think they're just El Cheapos. Like, the steel is really soft. When I sh- like, the blades have shortened to almost half the size they originally were just from constant wear, tear, and maintenance. Yep. But they're cheap and... I reckon they're probably about $15 Australian and they're probably the best scissors I've ever used. Yeah, right. Hey, you know, if he, he's got some high-end tools, but even some of the tools I see him work with on the daily, they're quite cheap. Yeah. Um, I'm technically a chef by trade and I can sort of uh, reflect from where he's standing on I don't know who the maker is or where he gets them, but he seems to buy from the same person and there's no brand on them. They're cheap, but they're always sharp. Or if they do go dull, they're easy to sharpen and they just, they keep going. Yep. Um, it's like in the chefing industry, you know, there's high end tools, there's different varieties of tools. Um, my toolkit is predominantly Shun knives. They're yeah. very expensive, very popular, but they are almost impossible to keep sharp. Like you'll sharpen them, but if they get to the point where they're that dull, you'll spend three days trying to get, hypothetically speaking, three days trying to get them to that point yeah. of being brand new again. But out of all of the knives I've got, my favorite knife is my standard edition Victorinox knife and that's about $60 and it's easy to sharpen it's easy to keep sharp and it just keeps on giving you know um yeah yeah it's, it's tricky you hear a lot of people say oh you know I've got to have Kikiwa tools or I've got to have Masakuni or Kanishin you know all, all these names and I mean, to me, to this day, I still haven't bought a high-end set of tools yet. Um, you know, I, like you said, I've um, I've still got Ryuga tools. Um, and then I've got some of the tools that we sell here at Bonsai M, which are Hanzo tools. Um, and they're kind of like a mid-range tool. They're really good quality. And, you know, I've, I've had Kikiwa tools um, and all that kind of stuff. And... Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's a funny stigma that's that's stuck on the tools that you know people seem to believe that the the more they pay for the tools, the better their work is going to be. Yeah, exactly. It's a very very interesting thing, isn't it? Mm. And sometimes you know, I'm not trying to sound rude, but sometimes the higher price you pay for the tools, 
the tools are pretty much rubbish. You just yeah. you're basically paying for the. Yeah, you're paying for the name exactly, and you know there, there's a lot of people out there that, um, especially I get I get beginners come here and they go, oh, do I need this tool? I need that tool. I need that tool. I said, well, look, when you need the tool, that's when you buy it. Don't buy it now. You, you'll know, you'll know you need that tool when you need it. And I always try to get them to invest in their education first because that's the best tool that they're ever going to get. Precisely. And I was preaching a very similar thing during a demonstration I was doing, I think, about two years ago. Yep. Uh, I was on stage and I was... It was either a maintenance demonstration or just a general styling demonstration of a tree. And someone asked me back then about, you know, what tools should I use? And I looked at them and I said, best tools you can use, a good pair of scissors and a good pair of tweezers. The rest you can figure out later on. And they looked at me funny and they're like, figure out later wrong. And I said, well, yeah. So when I first started bonsai, I can't remember if I was still an apprentice chef or if I'd qualified and I was, I'd left. And now I just started working in the construction industry. But at that stage, I didn't have a lot of money. And you can see on the internet, oh, all the books, you need a root rake, you need this. Go to the kitchen and grab a fork and Bend the prongs on that. There's your root rake, and it works. Yeah. You know, do you really need it? No. That's that's an afterthought for later on when you're doing that type of work, which, you know, I, I very rarely use a root rake for. So use a fork. And this one lovely lady, she sat there and she listened to it. Two years later, she came up to me and she goes, you know what, I still use the same kitchen fork thanks to your demonstration. You saved me $15. I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's funny because there's still a lot of tools that I don't even have in my toolkit, um, you know, because I, I live by the same rules that, you know, I preach that when I need a certain tool, that's when I'll get it. You know, I'm not going to buy it just for the, the sake of buying it. Um, Absolutely. I'm the same yeah. way. Do I need it? Oh, I need it for this one tree. Is it feasible? Mm, can I work without it? Yes. Oh, well, there's your answer. I mean, there's certain tools that as you you get more and more into bonsai and you've got more and more trees and you're doing more and more work on a regular basis, it's not really a necessity, but it is a comfort to have Um you know, like a good set of wire cutters are invaluable. Oh, absolutely. I was listening to your podcast with, I can't remember their names. Uh, is it Bonsai World? Uh, yeah. Where they spent, they spent all day, you know, just taking wire off trees. And he said, the best thing you can invest in is a good set of wire cutters. And that is so true. Oh, man. When I first started off, I was trying to use like just regular like side cutters. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, this is all right. And then when I bought my first set of uh, Ryuga 
like bullnose wire cutters and I cut that first piece of wire, I was like, man, I wish I had bought these months ago. <laughs> oh, man, we use, I use a set of wire cutters that I got given here in Japan. Yeah. I really need to replace them. I don't even know how to fix these, but I'm going to have to fix them sooner or later. But they're like a general set of scissors well, uh, with yep. a wire cutter end. They're yep. phenomenal. Like, especially when you work with aluminium, they're great. But the other pair of wire cutters I have, they're really good, but every time you cut them, they leave with a sharp end and you end up stabbing yourself with it every time. But these ones... I don't even know how to describe them. Every time you cut the wire, it's a smooth end finish and you don't cut yourself on the wire. Yeah. The only issue with those ones is, is you can only go up to a certain gauge. Correct. And that's why I broke the tip off them. <laughs> <laughs> Especially yeah. when you're trying to clean out copper wire on a tree. I, yeah. Sorry, Lee Cutter. Thank you for the scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because copper wire is a different game again. Um, oh, it's a whole new world. You know, it, your same thickness in copper wire is so much stronger than the same thickness in aluminium wire. That has been the biggest challenge I've faced since coming to Japan. Yeah, because you could use what would be... What's, your, what's the hardest dip part about bonsai? And everybody expects you to say, oh, watering. Yep. Nah, the conversion from, you know, only ever being able to afford and use aluminium wire, I had to completely learn how to rewire using copper wire. That's just a whole new world. The yeah. coils, the sizes, everything's slightly different. Yeah, and especially because, like, the gauging's backwards as well. Yeah. So instead of having like one mil wire go up to like eight mil wire, eight mil being your thickest and your one mil, you know, you're going from like your gauges are going backwards, but as the gauge gets smaller, the wire gets thicker. Yeah, uh, it drives me nuts when the wire rack runs empty and I've got to replace it and I'm having to try and do the maths on it. Because the numbers aren't on the wire rack itself and underneath the main table bench, that's where all the wires stored. I'm like, okay, so if that's a 16, I think this is a 20. No, that's an 18. Ah, what number is this? <laughs> Makes you think. Whereas the aluminium wire, it's like, oh, yeah, you want a three mil for that one. No dramas. Like, oh, this one's a 16. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It keeps you on your toes. Oh, well, that's, a, that's a good thing, man. That's how you learn. That's how it keeps your mind active. And, you know, by the time you come back, you'll be all over it. That's it. You know, you got to have a bit of fun here and there. Like, I probably shouldn't do it as often, but I quite enjoy teasing away cut through a little bit from time to time. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm sure he uh, enjoys the, the lighthearted humour. Uh, I think he does. Like... Sometimes you give me a bit of a whack for it where it's just like, why did you do that to me? But you know, from constantly having Japanese, uh, traditional style Japanese students where it's like, all of a sudden it's me, which is like, hey, and I'll go and do it. But every now and again, you know, you drop that cheeky little joke. 
and he he kind of he'll he'll sit back and he'll look at you and he's just like, ah, but he'll respect the joke. Yeah. There was one time uh, myself, Oyakata, and we've got a student. She comes at that stage. She was coming twice a week, but she's had to drop down to once a week. Yeah. And outside my bedroom window, there's a giant garden tree. Absolutely nothing at all. It's, it's just a tree that grows. And he's decided, uh, okay, it's getting too big. Let's cut it down. And all he's got is this tiny little step ladder and a little handsaw that's no bigger than your hand itself. Yep. And he's like, all right, we're going to cut the tree down. And I'm like, are you kidding me? With these? Okay, sure. Okay, we'll cut your master. I'm on it. Let's go. And, you know, we're trying to do it and it's just not working. He's like, all right, fine. I've jumped up and I've climbed up inside the tree. And he's like, oh, be careful, be careful, be careful. I'm like, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, pass me the saw. And uh, you can see by this stage, he's starting to get pretty nervous and Akio, she's getting a bit worried. She's like, this is getting pretty dangerous. Uh, he's pushing the stress and it's like, ah, uh, this is one of those perfect opportunities where, you know, all work and no play can be reversed and we can have a bit of fun with this. So I'll test the weight of the branch underneath my foot. Uh, okay. So with one hand, I'll be hanging on from my head over my head and I'll be cutting this branch and I'll deliberately put my body weight on the branch below me and snap it because I know it was going to get cut off anyway. And yeah. I'll drop and she'll be screaming, he'll be screaming and it's like, nah, it's so cool. But he's just, <laughs> ah. you know, I get hit for it, but sometimes the jokes are worth it. <laughs> Yeah, you you got to keep the lighthearted humour, you know, especially in the workplace. Yeah. yeah there's, there's no customers around, you know. Every day is always, you know, respect, strict, follow the rules. Sometimes you got to have a laugh, and I quite enjoy giving the way cutter a cheeky tease every now and again. You'll have to um, one day, I don't know if you've seen on Facebook, where they have these videos of people, they put the dry pasta in their mouth and they get somebody to come and, like, crack their back and then they chew the, the pasta and it makes that snapping sound. Oh, and I haven't they, seen that, but I'll have to Google it. Yeah, and people do that. You'll have to do that one day. Just have some dry pasta in your mouth and as you're bending a branch, bite down on the pasta so it makes that awful crack sound. <laughs> do it on, like, I love it. Do it on like a really high-priced customer tree or something. That is brilliant. I will keep that one in the memory banks. I, I'm, I'm sure if you did that, you'll be able to hear all the air just get sucked out of the room. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that's gold. I like that. I'm going to keep that one in the back pocket. <laughs> there was one day, uh, my, once again, it was myself, Akio and Oyakata, and I think we were preparing for Taikan 10 or Kokofu 10. I can't remember which one, but underneath the house is where all of the bonsai stands are kept, and okay. as well as household storage. And all day we're in and out, just grabbing stands, putting them on the display, putting the tree on display. No, no good. Take it off, run it back down, run it back up. All day, just constant shuffling, trying to find that one stand to match this one tree. And 
I can't remember who it was. It was either myself or Akio. One of us had tripped over, like just constant shuffling. And an empty cardboard box had fallen and landed on the ground. And it just went, doof. I've never seen the boss go so white. He's <laughs> come out. And he, what was that? And, oh, no. I'm so sorry. He's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Please tell me it's just an empty box. It's okay. <laughs> I got hit that one as well. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> Especially, too, because you probably would have been like, um, you know, handling very high price stands and yeah, very old, very high priced, and because of the age, the glue's coming apart, and the seals aren't so good. I've had to repair a few of them, so you know, when I'm holding certain stands, certain pots, certain bonsai trees, I'm too scared to even consider the notion of cracking a joke because I just know the age and value. Yep. And, you know, I would hate to make be that one guy that's just like, ha-ha, pretend to drop this pot, and you actually do drop the pot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'll be, um, no matter what restrictions are on flights at the moment, you'll be back to Australia in no time. <laughs> uh, I made a joke about that once, and my senpai said, no, you will never leave Japan. Right, I'll become fertilizer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what's the, what's that lump under that tree? Never you mind. I uh, I'm just raising the height of the tree. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a very deep pot for that maple. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize showing grown containers of that size. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> training. Oh, man. We've been going for an hour and 37 so far, so I think we'll wrap it up here. All right, no worries. I, uh, I definitely think I'm probably going to have you on again because I think there's so much more that we can talk about, um, you know, especially as you get further into your uh, apprenticeship over there. Yeah, no, thank you so much for this opportunity. Like, I'd love to do another interview with you. Like, yeah. keep, let's keep it going. Let's make it a regular thing because, you know, I came here to help Bonsai Australia, so I'm more than happy to help and it was good chatting to you any time. Yeah, and for everybody that's listening, um, where, where can they find you on the internet, Facebook, Instagram, those kind of things? Uh, the best place you can find me would be on Instagram. I use Facebook but. People have told me I get a little bit too carried away on Facebook. Instagram is for all of my professional work. That is Bonsai Sean, B-O-N-S-A-I-S-E-A-N, all one word. Shouldn't have any troubles following me and adding me on there. But if you do want to add me on Facebook, it's Sean Hartley with H-A-R-T-L-E-Y. Feel free to follow Awesome. I um I think I follow you on both platforms. Uh, I think I follow you on Instagram with the Bonsai Anne account, actually. Ah, awesome. So I, I think I seen the other day um, when you were trying to take a video of that tree and you were turning the turntable with your foot. Ah, yeah. Doing it old school. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit shocking with technology and 
I really should have set it up, set my phone up, and moved it with my hand. That was a bit lazy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever gets the job done, mate. Yeah, that's it. All right, well, um, I'll let you get back to work, and uh, thanks so much for joining me tonight and taking some time out. I know it gets busy there in Japan, especially on an apprenticeship. Uh, no, seriously, thank you for your time. Tonight's my Friday night, so I'll be working late and sleeping in tomorrow. No worries, mate. Well, um, once again, thank you, and we'll chat soon. No worries. Catch you later. Ah, thank you very much. You Bye. take care, mate. Bye. Bye.